Welcome to Multilingual Montessori, a podcast where we discuss multilingualism, multiculturalism, and raising children from a Montessori perspective. I'm Gabrielle Kutkov, an AMI Montessori guide and TESOL instructor, and I'm the founder of the Multilingual Montessori website and Instagram account. Today I'm speaking with Ginny Gonzalez, an AMI certified 0 to 6 Montessori guide and the director of early childhood at Austin Montessori School in Austin, Texas. Ginny is originally from Puerto Rico and is a mom to three boys, and she has been working in Montessori for 22 years. In this conversation, we chat about Ginny's experiences teaching in a dual language immersion Montessori classroom, her experiences raising bilingual children, and advice she gives to teachers and parents about supporting young children's language development. Ginny is a walking encyclopedia of Montessori information. I think you're really going to learn a lot from her. A few notes about our conversation. You'll hear us talk about AMI, which stands for Association Montessori Internationale, the organization which conducted our teacher training program that was founded by Maria Montessori and her son Mario in 1929. You'll also hear us talk about the Children's House, which is a mixed-age class of two-and-a-half to six-year-olds in a Montessori school. At Austin Montessori School, the toddler program is called the YCC, which stands for the Youngest Children's Community with children from 16 months to three years old. Lastly, my audio was a bit glitchy during our conversation. I did my best to edit out the worst of it, but you'll hear my voice cut out just a bit when I'm asking some questions. Sorry about that. I'll try to fix the technical issues for next time. Luckily, Jenny's audio was working fine and her answers are crystal clear. So please enjoy my conversation with Jenny. Welcome to the Multilingual Montessori podcast. I'm so glad you're here. Um, to start, I'd love for you to introduce yourself. Tell us who you are and what you do. Yeah, well, thank you for the invitation. Um, my name is Ginny Gonzalez. I work for Austin Montessori School in Austin, Texas. Um, and I am the director of Early Childhood. I've been involved in Montessori, wow, a little bit over maybe 22 years. Wow. And um, I've worked with Children's House, uh, three to six-year-olds, and um, the children from the YCC, the toddlers. Um, Also, I've worked with parents in the parent-infant community. And um, still doing it, having a great mm-hmm. old time right now. And you're also a mom. And I'm also a mom. And how old are your sons now? So I have my, my, my oldest son. He is 24. Mm-hmm. His name is Kevin. He just graduated college and is now being an adult <laughs> in the world. Um, Joshua, who's my middle child, he's 18. And then I have Sebastian, who is 14. He's currently enrolled at Austin Montessori School. And he is uh, in ninth grade in the adolescent community. Wow, his last year. 
Yes, it's his last year. Oh my goodness. Um, So I'd love for you to walk us through how you first found out about the Montessori method, what drew you to Montessori, uh, and what made you decide to get training? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. Everybody has their Montessori story. <laughs> um, so I, I went to a Montessori-esque uh, school as a child until I was ready to go into first grade. And when I was about 19, I uh, began working as an assistant in a needle community for babies, you know, between eight weeks and 14 months. And the following year, I worked with the toddlers. And then the following year, I went to work with uh, the children's house as an assistant. And at that time, um, around the year 1999, uh, the Montessori training came to Puerto Rico. And Uh our school was led by uh, a director who was AMI trained, Association Montessori International. And she um, offered me uh, sponsorship. Oh, and nice. So I went ahead and became uh, a children's house guide. Um, took my first summer in the year 1999. And where in Puerto Rico was that? It was in San Juan, Puerto Rico. Nice. So did you do a three summer program? I did a three summer program. And then when I finished my, my, my last summer and I took my exams, by that time, I had already uh, accepted a job in, in Austin, Texas mm. at a uh, dual language immersion program. And so soon after my graduation, I packed my bags and moved to Austin. And... Um, one of the things that I had to do when I, when I moved here was that um, I had to find some mentors to actually give me, you know, some of these language lessons mm. and, and all of the lessons, uh, all of the nomenclature, all of the names of the exercises in English so that I could, I could be... Um, knowledgeable about uh, the proper language when I when I came here. Um, the first months I was actually teaching in Spanish in my class. Mm-hmm. And then when we hired um, my assistant who was also, also a Spanish speaker, then we, we went to the dual language um, mm-hmm. program. So what did the dual language model look like in that classroom? Once you hired the new assistant, did she only speak Spanish and then you gave lessons only in English or was it a different format? Correct. So the, the, dual, lang- the dual language, um, it's a little bit different than the bilingualism um, because when you have dual language, you are doing all of the all of the exercises you're doing all of the the expressive language lessons uh, you're doing them both in English and in Spanish or whichever other language it can be mm-hmm. you know uh, whichever language um, is exposed 
in that community. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that, that I had to learn pretty, pretty soon was um, having a lot of integrity in the commitment to maintain an adult focus on, on speaking the language that they're supposed to be speaking the whole time so mm-hmm. that we're not flip-flopping throughout the day and doing some, some hybrid Spanish or Spanglish kind of combination mm-hmm. of, of communication. We wanted her to be speaking Spanish and then me giving all the lessons in English. And mm. it, it, was, it was really interesting because soon the children began also uh, learning some of the Spanish words and having those conversations with my assistant. It, it also helped that she, she didn't speak any English. Mm. So it wasn't uh, something that it was available for her anyways. Yeah. Um, yeah, we, we really learned a lot. My community also was a magnet for families who were also doing uh, dual language at home or also trilingualism. You know, some, mm-hmm. we had some other families who also ha- had more than one, one, one language at home. I had a student in my class that the mom was French and the the father was uh, spoke Arabic, and mm. their nanny spoke Spanish, and this three year old, three three and a half year old girl could just code switch <laughs> with whoever she was, and it was wow. really, it was really fascinating to see. Wow, that's amazing. That was going to be my next question. What was the makeup of the children as far as only speaking Spanish or only speaking English or other languages at home? Like, did anyone come into the classroom with no Spanish or no English? Yeah, we had actually, we had uh, a few families who did not speak any English. We had an, a few families that did not speak any Spanish. We, we had two children from Korea that did not speak any English or Spanish. <laughs> and so we, we had a really, it was a melting pot of different kinds of, uh, of familiar situations and, and ethnicities. And it really doesn't, whatever the child comes from, it really doesn't compromise. Mm-hmm. Um, what we do in the room because the children when they come into the environment they have this capacity of understanding that this is the way we do things here Mm -hmm. and that also includes the spoken language that is offered uh, in the community so they, they don't really they don't really have an attachment or the discerning of I'm supposed to be speaking something else, or I am upset because I don't understand. They, they, that's the, 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 the beauty of the malleability of, of that mind, you know, that zero to six mind where they just, mm. this is the way we, we do things here. And they're really easy to, to go along with whatever you're offering. Yeah. 
Um, tell me more about how the language lessons worked. So you said that all of the language lessons were given in Spanish and in English? Right. So I, um, the, my assistant was also Montessori trained. She had trained in Mexico. So obviously she was not, we, we wanted to maintain the integrity of having only one person giving the lessons and oversee the academic and, and you know, the development of all the children. Um, however, all of those lessons that we do at the beginning of the year, like the orientation games, um, mm -hmm. parts of the environment, parts of an exercise, areas of the room, all of those exercises she will do in Spanish. The, um, if, we, if I had a need for her to sing a song or read books, she will do those in Spanish. The other thing that she did was that if it was possible in the day, um, she would get th those nomenclature cards, those classification cards, and then she will give the children uh, the proper language. This is this, mm -hmm. this is that. And, and the children got really, really um, efficient at identifying things in the room. And I remember just seeing her giving children commands in full sentences of, you know, ve a la cocina y trae el tenedor. And then, you know, these children who were not, not you know, coming from, from places or from families that spoke Spanish, having a full understanding of what that meant. Because one of the wow. things that we know is also that as the child is receiving all this language, the, the receptive language, what they understand, sometimes there's a disparity between what they, the child knows and what the child can articulate, right? So, yeah. but, but that doesn't mean that there's not an understanding. And then, and then the, for those children that, you know, had, came from families where Spanish was spoken, once we got in depth with the, the, the lessons, the reading lessons, and they were going um, through that whole lesson, the, the, the reading apparatus, once the child became fluid, because they already knew all of, their, all of the Spanish sounds, you know, these are sounds that are living in them because of the absorber mind, then I, I actually show them how to read and write in, in, in Spanish. Mm -hmm. But because I knew that English was going to be what they needed in order to continue their academic you know, process, I had to make sure that that had a really solid foundation. So I'm really speaking about these six and a half year olds, you know, not, not a five year old who's emerging mm -hmm. as a reader. Um, and obviously it was super easy for them because they already know, they already had all this nomenclature. Um, and all you do is really highlight the letters that has they have a different sound and that's it which is in Spanish is like five or six mm. so you would teach them first in Spanish and then it would be very easy to 
to translate to English or not translate, but to make that jump to English? No, first in English and then okay, first in English, then in Spanish. Correct. Mm, Correct. I see because English is has more difficult sounds, uh, obvious, less <laughs> phonetic words. Yeah. Right. So mm. there's this. Well, as you know, um, there it's so complex. You know, I I coming from from a Spanish speaking country and knowing how easy it is to read in Spanish or, you know, any language that is purely phonetic, it's going to be easier for children to read because you don't have so many rules. So right. if you do it the other way around, I imagine that it will be a little bit more complicated because now the child has um, some fluency and then the difficulties, all the rules, you know, right. get in the way of their fluency. Um, so English first, once the child is an avid reader and they have a lot of fluency in the in their reading practice, then you can introduce. Uh, and I and I had a movable alphabet that um, that that was in Spanish. You know, they had the oldest Spanish mm. uh, letters. So. That was usually oh, cool. a really, a really, really fun uh, lesson to do as an extension of language for those children who were already bilingual. Does that make sense? Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Oh, that's so fascinating. So regardless of what the child's home language was, everyone in the classroom would learn to read in English first? Correct. Wow. Oh, yeah. So cool. Mm hmm um, what was the most challenging part about working in that dual language immersion classroom? Um, the, actually, the, the challenging part uh, had to do that the Spanish that I speak in Puerto Rico is, has many different words from Mexico. Ah, yeah. And different um different meanings so really um having a lot of conversations about finding uh, a um a common language so that uh we're using the same words and mm. at the beginning i didn't i didn't really understand how how different things are you know in, in mexico you know, from mexico to puerto rico yeah. Uh, so it took me it took me a minute to go. Oh, wait a minute! We have to really get clear about what the message is. I, even even as far as um, giving uh, the right nomenclature, you know, some some uh, some of the names of some of the exercises have slight variations, and we wanted to make sure that we had enough alignment that that. The children were not confused. Oh, wow. Yeah, that is so interesting. Um, and so is there anything else about, because I want to talk about bilingualism in your family as well. Is there anything else about the dual language immersion program that we haven't covered that I haven't asked you about? How long did you work in that program, actually? I was in that community a little bit over three and a half years. And... Um, the the leadership of the of the school changed, and they um, wanted 
to reallocate the resources in there, there was not a prioritization of of the dual linguism. So mm. in the absence of having my support person, my assistant who was trained, um, it, it became a really challenging to do both. And yeah. um, so, you know, I, I ended up uh, accepting another job and moving on to a, to a different school. Mm. Um, I think the 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 challenging part if you have a community um the that you know is going to be uh, transforming into being a dual language class is that we have to have everybody who's involved really being committed to the vision Mm. so it's not something that you just choose to do one day and the next day you don't feel like it and then you change it right yeah so it has to be um really really you have to have some cornerstones of this is the vision for the community and this is what we're going to be doing every single day in support of that Mm. that sounds difficult to really stay committed to like the consistency in language yeah yeah it's a little challenging but if you have the right support it's 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 an amazing opportunity for the children and did you speak to your assistant it's like she only spoke in front of the children would you speak to her in spanish as well in spanish yeah yeah so that the children knew that she only spoke spanish yeah um Okay, so I'd love to hear what bilingualism looks like in your family and when you were raising your boys and how that looks like. So at home, let me see. With my oldest, they have had, excuse me, um, a little bit of a different experience. Um, for my oldest, when we moved to to Austin, he only spoke Spanish. So for Kevin, he spoke Spanish. We spoke Spanish at home. And we moved here in July. By the time we we went back home uh, in December, he was already speaking English fully. Wow! How old was he? He was about was about two point like two and a half, almost three. Uh-huh. Wow! So um, at home we will speak Spanish. At school he will speak English. And then, um, so he is fully bilingual. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we lived in a community where the, the community itself didn't have a large population of Spanish speakers. Mm-hmm. So he didn't really need to practice Spanish in the day-to-day. Yeah. But he... He's someone who can, you know, have a conversation in Spanish, can write it, can speak it. 
Um, and then when my Joshua was born, my 18-year-old, he was born, you know, Kevin was already six, six and a half when he when Joshua was born. Joshua's uh, language development was a little different because he had a little delay in his speech, in the articulation of the words. And when we finally caught up with, you know, he's, um, he's having a, a slight delay, the speech pathologist recommended that we, that we really should stick to one language. Oh. So that he, you know, didn't have to be uh, negotiating between two languages at the time where articulation and the expressive language was so, such a delay. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, many years later, I question whether or not um, that was uh, the right decision yeah. to only speak English to him. Uh, he is someone who understands, but with the with my oldest, my youngest, I've been a little bit more proactive when they were little, where they, if they wanted something from, you know, at home, they had to say it in Spanish. They, ha they had to ask and get their needs met in Spanish, right? But I yeah. didn't do that with Joshua because, again, the development of language was a challenge for him already. Um, and then, so, and then when, when Sebastian was born, um, Sebastian actually loves languages and understands, can speak it a little bit. Uh, but again, one of the things that I know also is that the language itself is born out of a necessity, the, the need to communicate, right? the need for connection, mm. the need for communication. So if there is not a real need, they start losing it. Unless, you know, mm. unless you send them, you know, to be with the grandparents for, you know, for the whole summer, or they have, right. you have an extended family um, that really can support that native language, which I don't have in Austin. Yeah. Um, so at home, I speak it. Obviously, they understand it. I can have long conversations with my oldest. Um, my other two understand the little one, Sebastian, can actually uh, also speak back when he feels like it because he is a teenager. So it's, <laughs> a, it's a hit and miss. Right. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that's so interesting. Do you think that there's any ways, I mean, you mentioned like having them articulate their needs in Spanish at home. Do you think there are other ways that parents who are in a similar situation that they don't have that robust language community around them that they can sort of create those opportunities for the child to have to speak that language? Yeah, definitely. Um, the best model that that I that I have read and the and that I've observed in other families 
is also that same dual linguism model where you have a parent that represents this language and then you have the second parent that represents this other language and then one parent is always communicating with the child mm. in the in their native language and then the other parent is also doing the same yeah. i think i think um that that really offers an organic exposure yeah rather than i'm going to teach you spanish but i'll do it only for a few hours a day or for 30 minutes you know a day uh, i'm uh, obviously i'm not proposing that that a little exposure is is not better than nothing you know that right no sure um however from the child's perspective because again one of the, the qualities of that absorber mind that doesn't discriminate, you know, they don't know. They don't have a name for, oh, mommy is speaking to me in French or daddy only speaks to me in Italian. They don't know that. Mm -hmm. If the parent is communicating with them, they will learn to communicate with that parent out of necessity, out of connection, out of the need for, for community. Mm -hmm. So having two parents who are equally committed to doing that at least for the first three to four actually three to five years of the child's life it will just set the foundation for the child's you know ability to actually acquire more languages it's yeah. easier for a child who's um, bilingual or trilingual to actually learn more languages when they're a little older. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? It's fascinating. I, yeah, it really is. Um, and I love that. Like children will learn to communicate out of necessity and out of that drive for community. Yeah. Um, so you are now the director of the Early Years Program at Austin Montessori School. So tell me about the joys and challenges of running an early years program. And specifically, I'd love to hear about what advice you give to guides about children's language development, especially those that have children that join the classroom with little or no English. Yeah, that's a really good question. Actually, I, I was having this same conversation with a guide at our school with a child who they moved, um, they moved to Austin in July from Beijing, mm -hmm. and the the parents speak very little English, and the child obviously doesn't know any English. He's three. Um, the, the most important thing to know is that if we go back to the developmental loss of young children, we know that they are in this really, really intense period for, um, for developing language, for um, social relations, for um, having that especially sensitivity to communicate, the communication part. Mm -hmm. So we, we know 
what the child is inherent, inherently attracted to. We know also that they absorb from the environment, everything that's around them. Language is also included. So one of the things that I, that I, I speak to, um, to guides from children's house, I give them a little bit of information about how we introduce language in the toddler community. Because I think it get, it gives them a little bit more permission to really uh, deconstruct those language lessons to the simplest, which is at the beginning when a child comes to the community and they do not know anything at all. First of all, you have to expose them to as much language that you have available you everybody needs to be talking to this child Mm -hmm. all the children you have to pair this child with another child that is talkative (laughs) to make sure that we are constantly um giving the child the right language the second thing is that all of those orientation games are language lessons that become foundational for the child who doesn't know how to how to speak English? I mean, literally, you can you can choose anything in the room, and it becomes a language lesson. You can wow. take a, the basket for the the polishing wood, and then you will sit that child, and then you will give a, lang- a language lesson, just nomenclature. This is a sponge, sponge. Give me sponge in a three period lesson. At the end, if the child will feel comfortable, they might actually tell you, you know, the, the name of the object. But uh, at the beginning, we really will not be so focused on that third period that, that you know, please let me know that you understand the, understand the lesson. But we just want to give that child plentiful all of the communication and all the language. Another thing that I feel works really well which is a little bit challenging now because people have face masks oh yeah children are using face masks adults are having face masks but instead of sitting the child beside you for the lesson sitting the child in front of you you know you have a a face shield so that they can actually see your your mouth and they can see your face It's really, yeah. really, really uh, helpful. So yeah. I always say the the child's capacity for understanding uh, what you're saying is greater than they can express. So mm-hmm. continue speaking to the child. Don't get um, blocked by the idea that this child is not going to understand. Mm-hmm. And it may be that that. You know, like if you're giving the child a command and they don't understand it, you walk with the child and then you do a quick three-period lesson. This is the broom. The broom. Broom. You can touch the broom. Okay? Bring the broom. So so that the child can really increase the repertoire of, of, of words that they have available to them every single day. And if you do that with a lot of intentionality, um, they get they get pretty uh pretty good at uh 
at repeating back and eventually, you know, that's the beauty of language, especially for young children, is so effortless. Yeah. So they're doing this big work of that acquisition of language. Um, but once they get over that, that little hump, that's it. Then, then you go to the part of refinement. You know, mm-hmm. now you do the sound games that you work a little bit more articulation, lots of singing, lots of reading poems, finger plays, anything that the child um, can be exposed, but really like a lot, mm. plentiful so that the child can, can, can have that experience. Yeah. Oh, that's, uh, yeah, it really is. It's so amazing that it's so effortless for children, you know, in the first plane of development. And it's so hard for adults to learn a language. It's just, it's not the same. Yeah, and and um, also uh, it helps um, when we 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 gift parents who are not English speakers the same kind the same kind of exposure, so that they feel that sense of connection mm-hmm. uh, with the school and with the guide and with the community as a whole. Um, so you you asked um, what are the things that that I find challenging about uh, being the director of the early childhood programs? Yeah, and what are the joys? I I think I think that you know the more the more I am in in a position where. I'm working in directly with with guides and assistants and parents. I really understand that uh, Montessori is really a framework for human development. Mm-hmm. And the same way that that we, we, we are in this practice because we, we, we are a community of, of reflective practice. We, we give these lessons, we observe, we reflect, we implement, and then, you know, do it all over again and do it all, all over again. Is the, the challenging part is always, um, uh, being having clarity, finding or seeking clarity of what's really needed. You know, Dr. Montessori says, you give help where help is needed, right? Mm-hmm. So, but it has to be based on what the, the child needs, what the, the, uh, the adult needs, not what I think I want to give them. So it's always thinking about how can I support the development of humans? How can I support uh, the, the adults in the room so that they can support the children? So uh, in behalf, on behalf of the child's development, being able to really find that sweet spot for every single person and... Um, while staying committed to 
the whole the, to the whole the the whole vision of of the community standards for authentic Montessori practice. So, I think that's what what's a little bit more in my perspective challenging is that reflective practice of going okay so I observed and now what's next and then what's next after that and then what are we going to do about it what's next and being this in this continuous dialogue of 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 human growth and human development and, and self-awareness um can be can be a little tricky when you have you know nine to ten communities of 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 staff and children and it can add up yeah but, yeah but the the rewarding part has always for me has to do with the aha moment when we are having conversations about something and and I, I love asking open-ended questions like, okay, so help me understand what happened when you presented this lesson. And uh, going through the process of, okay, what, what did the child do before? Why this lesson for this child at this time? You know, sell it to me. What's coming next? And then having the... The, those aha moments of like, oh, okay, like now I'm clear where I need to go. Because what we really want for everybody, the child, the adult working with a child and parents, is that everybody has enough understanding and enough confidence, feels good about the their offering to the child right that i know enough i am following enough my own guidance intuition and knowledge about how to support this human being at one at two at three at four at five you know and then and so on for the other levels so that's what we want we we're we're in the business of human development so that looks different for a three-year-old you know to a four-year-old who's teaching in a class or to a you know pair of parents who have their first baby mm. what you want is for people to feel that they are in support of this human of this human being in this time and space ah oh, I love that you really have to have like a broad vision and take a broad perspective as the you know person who oversees so many people that work with so many children yeah, the wow. community the community is very very diverse, and the needs are are so many, and but it's also so rich because again, human development is is so nuanced, and there's so many things happening at once. It's it's like organized chaos. Um, <laughs> So I think that's that's my my greatest joy is the aha moment, the the having the the meaningful conversations that really lead parents and staff and the child to 
be better, mm. to be in a better place. Yeah. Oh, this is a wonderful conversation, Jenny. I have one more question for you. Um, what advice would you give or do you give who are raising their children with languages and, um, you know, are not sure how to or, or hit a stumbling block, what advice do you give them? Um, I would say um, that, you know, whether it's a, a single parent household or a couple uh, situation, that the most important thing is to be committed to what you want to offer to your child and have an understanding of what that's going to look like and what's going to require for the adult, the adults, you know, sometimes there's caretakers or extended family who's in the mix. Mm. So that we are really offering something with a lot of integrity, with a lot of beauty. The other thing that I will always recommend that even though we have parents who are bilingual and speak two or three different languages, I feel that when you share with your child your maternal language, your language of origin, there's a lot of soul. There's a lot of beauty there. Mm. So it is it is better in my opinion to if if you want to have a situation where your child is exposed to a different language but you yourself uh, are not very articulate or you know because you know we learn how to speak our language when you're when you're little that maybe you hire someone that does you know quote unquote the living with your child the mm-hmm. the living stuff the the nanny that might come to to your house and and prepares dinner and prepares baths and takes them to their swimming lessons so that that person will be committed to the language that they are speaking to that child i think i think that's that's everything if a child is exposed to a, a language with a lot of consistency and the person that is speaking that language is their native language you know there's the, that musicality that the, the rhythm the you know the child will really absorb all of those nuanced um, you know differences of, of that particular language so stay committed that this is what you want and then see it through for the first at least five years because once Mm -hmm. the child has been exposed to the same language for five years that's where that acquisition of language is is coming to an end they will not lose it if they if they are exposed to it oh that was great advice Thank you so much for joining me today, Jenny. This we've gotten we've covered so many topics. You've had such wonderful insights. I really 
you joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for the invitation. And, you know, I am looking forward to hearing more episodes of your podcast. Thanks, me too. (laughs) Thank you again to Ginny for joining me for this conversation. I hope you enjoyed it. Please take a moment to subscribe to the Multilingual Montessori podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would so appreciate it if you would leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It helps more people find the show, or so I hear. Thanks again for listening, and see you next time.